0: surprise we're taking the edup experience podcast to insights edu join us for an incredible higher education marketing and enrollment management conference february 20th to 22nd in phoenix arizona register now at insights edu.com and use promo code Edup to save 50 dollars off your registration commencement the beginning of a new era in higher education is amazing thousands of copies have been sold across the United States and the world. You can pick up your copy today on Amazon. Welcome back everybody. It's your time to add up on the Up Experience podcast where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio back with you here on another, and another, and another episode. Of Ed Up as we fast uh, approach 700 episodes, I never thought I'd say that I did 700 podcast episodes. In fact, I probably have missed 20 of those. I think in total, maybe 20, 25. I actually have missed, or I couldn't do it. Somebody stepped in for me. But I'm pretty sure I've done over 650 myself, or been on for over 650. My brain is full of information. Um, where you can get some of the information from. 150 of the presidents we interviewed on this podcast is in our new book, Commencement, The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education, which if you haven't heard me plug it on this podcast, you're probably not listening because since I do the podcast and I have a book, it's like, why wouldn't I plug my own book? Uh, But Commencement is about the future of higher education informed by 150 college and university leaders across the globe. Uh, We'll give you incredible insights. Uh, I know because uh, I wrote a lot of it and it was very, very hard to get all of the themes college and university presidents are dealing with today into a book, even though it's already 500, it's like 500 pages, but it is very easy to read. I will say that it is not written in a, in a way that it's hard to read. And there's a lot of social media pull quotes in there. I encourage everybody to check it out. Um, So since then I've interviewed now 105 more presidents and it's like, right after we wrote that book, AI became a thing, a real thing. If it was the thing before, it was a real thing after um and colleges started really closing in a fast way and partnerships started to manifest themselves and mergers and acquisitions started heating up we're really in an interesting time in higher ed and i think if you're if you're hearing this podcast it's probably two weeks out from where we record it but there were two more institutions that had their accreditation pulled and uh, their regional institutions uh, but they're closing, and you just wonder where does it end? One person that's going to help me tell the story today uh, is a is a person I'd like to bring to the microphone. He's got a uh, a southern accent, uh, which you'll hear as he talks. Um, it's it's very southern, uh, it's, It maybe like a Mississippi, Alabama type accent. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is. He's Elliot Markowitz or Markowitz, depending on where you're from. Head of
1: content and editor-in-chief of Pierce Education,
0: Elliot. What's going on?
1: Well, thank you for having me once again, Joe. Always appreciate the opportunity to get in on the thought leadership and pick the brains of these outstanding guests. If you think I have a Southern accent, you really need to get out on the country a little bit more.
0: Uh, it's, uh, it's not, I mean, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's more Northern. I guess it's more Northern. Uh, that, I like to call him Elliot Markowitz, and then he corrects me and yes. says Markowitz. Uh, so you got to get it right if you're going to do it. Elliot, it's always a pleasure to have you back on as we have these conversations with uh, trailblazing leaders throughout, educa- throughout education. See where i, I you know what? There's not a day that goes by that I do this podcast where I don't make a mistake and I leave every mistake in. That's the beauty of the Oedip experience is that when you mistake or you make a mistake, it stays in because we're making mistakes every day as we work with students and those mistakes that we make are real. And so they stay in the podcast because we're all humans and i'm going to bring a real live human to be our guest today here he is ladies and gentlemen he's dr farzin majidi he is the dean for the graduate school of education and psychology at pepperdine university farzin how are you
2: very well thank you and thanking me thank you for having me on
0: your show it's an honor to have you here my friend pepperdine What an incredible institution and one of the most beautiful campuses I've ever seen. I had an opportunity to be at Pepperdine once, and it's one of the campuses, the college campuses you get on, and you go, you start looking around, going, Whoa, look at that. Um, Tell us a little bit about Pepperdine and what you do. Uh, Pepperdine has five schools. I I
2: reside at the Graduate School of Education and Psychology. Pepperdine has a Seaver College for our undergraduates, then a School of Law, School of Public Policy. Graduate School of Business and Management. And I think I left one out. That's okay. You you just didn't
0: include them. You didn't leave them out. You just didn't include them this time. That's right.
2: That's right. Nailed it. So policy, business, Seaver College, undergraduate and graduate school of education and psychology. I'm the dean of grad school of education and psychology. At the graduate school, we cater to working adults. So most of our students, about 90% of our students Uh, commute to the campus, unlike our undergraduate experience. We are also headquartered pretty close to the uh, LAX area, so we don't get the the beauty of the magnificent beauty of our Malibu campus. But life is good here, too. Uh,
0: No traffic in that area, of course. You can just get in and out of the campus. I'm going to ask that as my first question, because as somebody who just, uh, I moved to St. Charles, Missouri last Uh year and the previous to that spent four years in chino hills california which uh, about 45 minutes away from the from lax if you hit no traffic but i had to go to lax a lot because i travel a lot and you know if you have commuter students in the southern california area the number one thing that people talk about in california is traffic you know take if you've ever seen Saturday at live they even did a skit called the californians about it where you take the 10 and get on the 40 and you know it is truly like that how how does how do you deal with the in and out of commuter students um, cuz traffic is a real thing
2: yes so one of the things we are sitting on and i suspect this will come out later too is the preferences of students so you know, some thought that everything will go online, some thought, some thought nothing will ever go online. And we're finding that there is a sweet spot in there somewhere where you have a hybrid format when students come to campus maybe once a week or once a month for intensive sessions and the rest you manage virtually. But um, one of the keys to our success over the years was being able to pick locations that are central enough. So nobody has to travel more than 20, 30 minutes in and be able to accommodate them. But, um, traffic is real. I live eight miles away from the campus. And that takes me 45 minutes if I don't plan my time. Well,
1: Holy crap.
0: That's a, that, that that's a long way that eight miles could be 80 minutes, depending on where you, where you live in Southern Cal. Talk about students right now a little bit. Um, you know, graduate programs across the country are experiencing some enrollment decline, not as stark as undergraduate programs where we saw the 10% reductions, but grad programs 2%, 3%. Some are climbing back out of that, but some are still experiencing the, the decline um, because of the value conversation. Maybe higher ed doesn't have value or you don't need a degree anymore. Are students still seeking the master's, the doctoral degrees like they were before? Or is there more of a convincing process taking place these days?
2: There is. The convincing process is is alive, but it seldom makes it to the application process. So students usually do a good job of convincing themselves whether they want to apply or they don't want to apply. Once they apply, the convincing process becomes why are we the best fit for you or Equally, why are you the best fit for us? But that pre-convincing, convincing convincing, uh, decision is, in my opinion, is what's altering the trajectory of enrollment across the various universities. Students have to decide, do I want to go back?
0: Why do you think they are deciding not to go back now when they used to would have come back to school? What's dissuading them? Well... We know historically,
2: research shows that there is a diverse correlation between employment and education. When unemployment is high, people are not working, they're a lot more likely to go back and get other degrees. When they are working, when they find a job, they don't go back to work as much. This is this is held true, numerous ups and downs in the in the economic cycle. Now, along with that comes the value calculation. Now I have an economics background, so I somewhat believe in the rational person theory. And so people make rational decisions. You figure, all right, if I go get this degree, both intangible and intangible benefits over the next five years, I'll get X many dollars of benefits. People call me doctor. That may be appealing to some, or uh, this allows me to get more promotions, better opportunities, et cetera. And they, they compare that to what it costs to do the program. That cost benefit analysis right now tilts on the side of don't go to pursue higher education. Another piece, and and tell me if I'm long-winded, I come from the rank of faculty where they wind us up for four hour lectures. So (laughs) let me know if I'm running long-winded. The second piece to this is there is a real supply and demand issue. See, if everybody has a bachelor's degree, then a bachelor's degree has no more value as a something that differentiates you from somebody else. Then everybody needs a master's degree to differentiate themselves. And if that happens, then the master's degrees, you know what's the difference between having one or not having one and everybody else has one. These become minimum requirements. So there is some saturation of degrees. And the last piece is um, some majors just have a better rate of return on investment than others. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing a lot of folks who went into Areas of study that doesn't have that high rate of return now have now are stepping back, and those fields are suffering a little bit.
0: Hmm. Elliot, I want to bring you in, but I just want to let you know that I downloaded this sound for you. I wasn't going to play it, but you're here.
2: From now on, you will speak only when spoken
1: to. But, you know, <laughs> that, that seems you to be over. the story of my life. You know, as <laughs> Cat Stevens once said, "From the moment I can talk, I was ordered to listen."
0: So. <sighs>
1: In his own Father and Son. Uh, but I have a real interesting question for you in that, you know, uh, especially since you're dealing with, you know, the, uh, the postgraduate degrees and, and adult students, how important is a flexible learning environment for your university and for your students? And how has that changed over the last couple of years or evolved? And what do you see going forward you doing to that type of the curriculum? It's
2: not just important, it's life and death. Mm. Students now have infinite uh, supply of universities and programs to go to. And one of the mistakes they make is that where you get your degree is equally as valuable of having that degree, especially once you get past the bachelor's degree, your doctorate, your master's degree. So there are so many different places available to pursue a doctorate. we, We offer a PhD in global leadership. There are a number of other PhD programs similar to it. Some come at a fraction of our cost, some come fully online, some come with different features, etc. And if the students are making decisions not for based on I want to attend pepper nine, but how does this fit in my life? Now uh, and then there there is, I don't want to call it misinformation, I and mean, it's not misinformation, but it's information that's not precise, perhaps. So getting a degree from University of X. Getting a doctorate degree from University of X isn't equal to getting a doctoral degree from another school that's that's more prestigious. So some students are making a convenient decision. This this fits my life, which is crucial. And then get a degree and then, then apply for a teaching position with a doctorate, and their CV D doesn't even make it past the mail
1: And I just want to follow up with that. We recently published an article where a lot of students, when they're making their final decision, it actually, a lot of times they said it came down to the way the university communicated back with them and how easy the communication was and how welcome they felt. You know, how have you concentrated your outreach or recruitment efforts to make sure that potential, you know, uh, recruits want to choose Pepperdine? So, we are a faith based university. So,
2: in our value system, every person is created uniquely in infinite images of a God we worship and we praise. We have that level of obligation to everyone. And this precedes the the, I want to see the management syndrome uh, issues that, that now we are dealing with. So, that has always been our obligation. Now, what you concede in this process has become an issue. So everybody competes to provide good service. You're absolutely right. If you're not, somebody is not happy with something And an enrollment officer said, they will immediately call the manager. I jokingly say, my job resembles a lot more the manager at Denny's than the dean at the largest mm. graduate school of psychology in the world. Yeah, so th- that's absolutely important. But the, you know the, the other side to that, and I know you didn't ask it, the other side to that is a lot of schools are conceding a lot to get that information
1: pandering almost Hmm. i can can see that
0: if you go back in time a little bit uh farzin uh, you um uh, to the to the 80s early 80s uh, mid mid 90s you're a program development manager for the city of los angeles so public policy and social change and and those types of areas you started teaching in the mid 90s and you started looks like you started a business you're an organizational consultant for other businesses and then you get into higher ed. What about higher ed? What does higher ed need to do to stay relevant? Because you come from a background of business and policy outside of higher ed. When you got into higher ed, were you looking around going, what the heck? Or, you know, this makes sense? Or, boy, it doesn't move very fast or it moves very fast. What, tell us about some of your perceptions of higher ed as you've moved through administration now. And what are a lot of questions? I just have a lot of questions for you. T- tell me no what higher ed needs to do. So if you have
2: that sound effect that says bullseye, on my behalf, play that for you. You they- would play,
0: play that for me? No, no, no.
2: Bullseye. On my behalf- <laughs> I, I I really love the question. It's a question of relevance. Um the biggest challenge we face in in, in real life is, is remaining relevant i am old enough to have driven to blockbuster video to go up and down the aisles to find that dvd and for home entertainment now i have you know, a, a that would have been a
1: vhs
0: vhs oh
2: vhs too. yes <laughs> Mac, you want to go or i'm there. older than you
0: <laughs> to, to to just drive this point home there's actually a meme on social media and it says and it's a guy and he's going up and he's grabbing the VHS off of the blockbuster. And there's no tape behind it. There's no VHS. And he said, if you don't know what this feeling is, you don't really know what it was like to go to a video. Exactly. Store. It's
2: an empty yes. box. Yes. And you know,
0: um, We made you that- lose this. Did blockbuster- we make-
2: Sorry.
0: I was going to ask you if we made you lose your train of thought there.
2: Oh, no, no, no. no. That's good. I, I do it on my own plenty. Well, so don't feel like <laughs> <bad>. nailed it. <laughs> so, Blockbuster became irrelevant. You know, it, just imagine, what, 30, 40 years ago, a bunch of people in Switzerland were looking at watches and, you know, they were making the best watches in the world and a team from Japan goes over there and says, you know, there's this new stone that you can put in a watch. It's much stronger, keeps much better time, far less effective, called quartz. And they laugh them off. And now uh, every watch is quartz. Um, stories like that are immense, like um, I'm old enough to remember MySpace before there was FaceTime, before there was Instagram, before there was something else. So as quickly as you become prominent in some field, equally as quickly you become irrelevant. Hmm. Not obsolete, but irrelevant. So one of the challenges for us is how do we maintain an education system that doesn't allow people to become irrelevant very quickly? How you quickly did the... Uh, uh, Starbucks hasn't become quite irrelevant. They have a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. But Blockbuster Video became very quickly irrelevant. Netflix bought them up. And, you know, like the story has that Netflix goes, uh, the founders of Netflix go to Blockbuster and go, now we have technology. We can put all your DVDs on a server. People can download it. And for $50,000, we'll sell it to you. And they'll laugh them off. And then they offered the entire chain 10 years later to, to Netflix for you know, pennies at the time, and they wouldn't take it. So that issue of relevance is really critical.
1: Mm-hmm. With, with, with that being said, Joe, if you don't mind me, me yeah. jumping in, how important has the investment in technology been at your university to stay relevant? And and again, let's not talk about just staying relevant, but, you know, planning for the future and what you're looking at to, to uh, obviously embrace going forward.
2: Um, excellent question. So, I remember when the COVID pandemic hit March, 2020, I had a group of doctoral students flying to Los Angeles for a four day intensive. And they were literally at the airport and we were calling them and saying, stay home. We don't know what we are gonna do, but we'll figure something out so your education doesn't get disrupted. And everybody said, and everybody jumped on and then they bought all these cameras and microphones and and they anticipated that, that the pendulum now will swing fully to online. I, I read a lot and I used to read all these predictions that universities won't need retail space, um, office space. Universities, you know, leasing of commercial buildings will go away. There will be a disaster. What people don't consider often is when a pendulum swings, it almost never swings back to where it was. It always lands at a new equilibrium because the reason it swung is the external forces have changed. Those external forces never go back to where they were. They just create a new equilibrium. So we're still looking for that new equilibrium. It's pretty safe to say so far, and and, and I'm guilty of what I'm accusing everybody else. Like we see three cars ahead of us on the road and we think this is the trajectory of the road for the next 100 miles. It's not. It's just the immediate future. There was some push to create simultaneous attendance. That is at 4.30, if your class started at 4.30 in the evening, as is the case for us, At 4.15, you would decide if you're going to drive home and jump on Zoom and be virtually in the classroom or drive to the campus and be physically in the classroom. There are a lot of challenges with that. The notion of fully online appeals to about one third, about 34, 35% of students based on our own internal studies. And it's completely unappealing to another 40%. So if we go with that 40%, really like the college experience being on campus and they can't, there's a middle 30%, 25% that are, you know, like hybrid and the rest. So we have to figure out where do we position ourselves and build a repertoire around that. What is the sweet spot is really the question. And so far what we're seeing is the hybrid format, not the simultaneous attendance. Mm-hmm. Every one of these requires a different degree of commitment to, to technology. So one of the decisions we made early on that it's, for us, it's, Learning, learning theory, pedagogy, as opposed to technology. So we decided that for us, the number one thing was student engagement. Our Excellent. students, have, you know, they're not going to sit there and listen to the sage on the stage, and and marvel him in here. They want to be engaged. They want to be so. For us, the challenge is how do we create engagement in a flexible arena where the cost of technology is low enough, where something shifts tomorrow, I can shift with it. So it's very difficult for the bureaucracy of higher education to adopt a nimble mindset.
1: Absolutely. That's a fact. That's a fact. Absolutely. Attention.
0: Are you ready to elevate your institution's marketing and enrollment strategies? Join the EdUp Experience podcast at the Insights EDU conference, February 20th to 22nd in Phoenix, Arizona. Don't miss out on this opportunity to hear from engaging speakers from industry leading companies like Google LinkedIn, Adobe, and higher ed leaders. Learn the latest marketing and enrollment strategies to grow your programs. Register now at insightsedu.com and use promo code EDUP to save $50 off your registration. Attention. Oh, yeah. Join the movement to mobilize and revolutionize higher education by picking up your copy of Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education today. This book has been featured in Forbes, NPR, Harvard Business Review, CEO World Magazine, NBC News, CBS News, and Business Insider, among many others. Don't miss out on what today's highest college leaders have to say about the future of higher education. Pick up your copy on Amazon.
1: And, and just as a follow up real quick, how did your faculty respond to those types of challenges because they were used to being subject matter experts and responsible for their, obviously for their lectures, but now they have to be technologists. They have to be social media experts and it's all about student engagement, but now they have to wear these other hats and some of them handled it a lot better than others. How did you bring your faculty along to embrace this blended approach?
2: So immediately the first thing that comes to mind is the conversation about relevance. Uh, There is a professor here at the business school who inspired me to leave a very lucrative business lifestyle and go into the Mm. modesty of an academic life. That person's magic is in his lectures, Mm. you know, is his his presence. So somebody like that goes from top of the student ratings to now all of a sudden, well, that doesn't work online. Right. You know, like when you're in class, if you're engaged with students, it's like being on a poker table. You're reading expression, you're reading the so-called tells, you're responding live, on Zoom as the primary medium, you don't have that luxury. So there were some that were left behind. There were some, they had a couple of faculty and mind you uh, Pepperdine's graduate school of education and psychology, pretty far along in the online learning space. We have okay. had online programs, partially online programs for over 30 years, long before. Amazing. That, you know, well, we were blessed we, with, with some visionary leaders in the past. So. But we still had one faculty member who came in and said, I know it's COVID, but I don't have internet at home. What do you mean? Well, I have a cell phone. That's good enough, but I can't do classes. So how do I get internet? And and then you get internet is how do I turn it on? How do I turn it on? How do I log in, et cetera, et cetera. Once you get past the first level of preparation, the minimum requirement is kind of like once you get your driver's permit, now you get in the car. Now you got to learn to drive. Then you learn to drive now you got to be really really good at it for the freeway that really really good at it for the freeway is you know you have the basic skills of technology you have a good commitment to teaching you have your material now it's delivery how do we recreate the magic in the classroom online so for us it was literally going stage by stage um we did a really good job but we were far from perfect and and it continues
1: it will continue to be a challenge, and as technology continues to advance, and you know the one thing, and I know Joe agrees with this, is you know the the, the student you really got to look at the student as almost the customer and how and when they want to receive information. Uh, it could be different than someone else, and you know, and lecturers and professors have had to adapt to continue that student engagement, but across different mediums.
0: How you're do you ab- b- please? Go ahead. ahead.
2: Well, you absolutely do, but there is a balance. It's almost like when two people get two people into a relationship, you know, one person cuts down 30% of their, their needs and desires. The other person cuts off 30% and they put it together and collectively they get 140% more than each person could have individually got it. So this relationship with, with this highly demanding students that want, um, you know, a Bloomingdale customer service is balanced with you also have to meet standards. That's our job. Right. So developing that partnership, developing that mindset and expectation early on is really critical. And, you know, some are better at it and some fully cater to students in order to get them away from someone else. And and then the student walks into an arena that they didn't think they will get.
0: Hmm. Let's go back just a bit to the, you you said the bureaucracy that's involved in higher ed. It is a highly bureaucratic industry. We, We you know, as a dean, I'm sure you know better than, than most, there are lots of committees. Um, things can get stuck in committees. Things don't move as fast as the business world might move things along. How do you balance relevance against that bureaucracy when the the foundation of higher education, the way we're designed in many ways, is to prevent speed? Not prevent speed, but it's, it's against fast-moving decision-making with... We have to stay relevant. We have to do this right now. I I know in in my environment and the environments I've worked in, it's like, we have to do this right now. But wait a minute, wait a minute. We have to socialize this. We got to get feedback. We got to get all these things. It's like, by the time we get it over to where we need it, we're not going to need it anymore because they're going to go somewhere else to get it. How do you balance those two things? Uh, We always look at, we're very entrepreneurial. George Peckerdine, the founder of
2: of our university, was an entrepreneur who sold auto parts through um postcards and mail order long before there was such thing. So we have that spirit. So we're always looking at what are some new offerings we can be early to market in and, and make that our thing for a while. So as soon as we find something, we look at the accreditation process and you know like I can have I can be nimble at my end and I can develop a curriculum, get it approved through all the committees in six, seven, eight months, which is like light speed, mm-hmm. you know, for us. Uh, but then there is a three and a half to four years accreditation process to offer your first class who knows what's needed in four years you know you buy an electrical car and they've guaranteed their batteries for five years and then they say well we don't know what battery life is going to look like in five years Yikes! So, there is internal bureaucracy and then there is external bureaucracy and One of the things that has really helped us is we have figured out how to be curriculum nimble. So, you know, like if you go to one of our programs, there are 12 units of coursework that's also the same coursework in another program. And it's also the same coursework to another program. And and then there is another eight units that applies here and there. And you can rebundle these into new programs. That allows us to get our own internal bureaucracy done in pretty quick order and then we are at the mercy of dealing with accreditation and there are strategies there too you know them but you have to be almost like a surgeon curriculum surgeon to to figure out how to navigate these paths and nobody teaches you this you just learn the hard way i like your style
1: dude (laughs) elliot funny uh Let me ask you a question. Being a a faith-based university uh, through these last couple of years, do you think that has played to Pepperdine's advantage in terms of maybe cutting through some of that bureaucracy, getting people on the same page, having the students' cooperation and the faculty cooperation a little bit more because there's a little bit more of a like mindset than maybe a, a, a public university?
2: Excellent question. Very thought-provoking for me. So we talk about civil, uncivil discourse in the public arena. Like there's not nothing you can watch on television other than you know TV shows and stuff where two sides don't yell at each other. And and that's that lack of civility starts in higher education. So um, even though we're very strong in our commitment to faith. We don't evangelize. You're more than welcome to. You know, our table is open to you. Mm-hmm. Everything as valuable as anybody else, but there's no mandatory requirement to do anything that you're not comfortable with. So we are less susceptible to that. But uh, no, uh, unfortunately, whatever ideology you have, whether it's left, middle, right, no ideology, etc., you're not immune to the discourse, uh, to the to the you know divisive discourse that that's mm-hmm. out there we choose truth over
1: facts <laughs> oh, really you. <laughs> um
0: you know uh, the the that to add on to that question uh, being a faith-based institution at times puts people into a common vision and that we want to we want to develop the whole person a lot of times you hear something like that or something similar from a faith-based institution where it's not just about education it's about education it's about faith it's about workforce it's about all these things um how central is the the faith is their faith based curriculum central across degrees? Um, is it the institutional vision that is faith based, but the degrees are all um, uh, uh, tactical, more tactical? Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yes, and thank you for asking that. I come from a culture of metaphors. I'm going to take a shot at one. Hopefully, we we'll lose in translation. Like, I don't know if either of you are in a committed relationship, but let's say you're married. When you go home at night and you're married or any committed relationship, do you, do you do a specific section of the time as married or is that the context? I'm guessing that's the context. Like I've been married forever and Betty and I like don't have Saturday morning four to six. We're being married. You know, we are, we are married. Yes. It goes in our commitments. We don't have to try to be married when you're committed to that. Everything you do is consistent with that. So our journey of faith, our commitment to our faith, is the context, is the backdrop. Um, we do have convocation for students to attend. There are opportunities to attend church services on campus, and there is there is no avoidance of any conversation about faith on any policy issue in any classroom. But it's also not mandatory or required. You know, uh, there is a there is a hymn we sing at the church that I attend that says, "You know, we are." Christians by our deeds, not not by how we beat the
1: Bible. But but I think that's very key in one of your opening statements where you first said at the beginning of this podcast uh, that you look at every student as an individual, and therefore no student should be left behind, and each one of their individual needs need to be met. You know, along the lines of Joe's question, that really does come from a group mentality
2: uh at the university so let me push back on that how about not a group mentality in this sense that we recognize and honor you as a distinct individual created in infinite images of god god is diverse god you know like so but you're distinct you are not member of a group so you know like i'm Farzine. i'm not i'm not and Iranian-American
1: as you know right so right well well well, maybe I should clarify well my point was that the leaders in the university have the same mindset that each student is an individual yes Yes. that's where I was going with
2: that oh no no problem I I understand now so in my jargon we call that we do have that shared vision we do we do have that clear understanding yeah we have many you know I'm sure you've seen as many vision statements as anybody else and, and nobody knows what they are because they're like 50 pages long and nobody pays attention to it. So for us, you talk to anybody around Pepperdine and administration and stuff, you hear three words, purpose, service, leadership. Mm. You know, and, and that serves as our over the years, de facto, guiding principle, uh, prime directive, if you're a Star Trek man. And, and that's what's, you know, uh, while, while we are true to that, we really do well.
0: My big takeaway from this part of the conversation is I feel like if I go to my wife and say, could we just be married from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. and then you allow me to play video games the rest of the day, and I'm going to cite Dr. Farzine Majidi that gave me that advice. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'd get away with it.
1: I don't think so.
0: But I might try anyway because I really enjoy video games. I enjoy my wife too, Antonell. If you're listening to this, I love you very much. I, I, but I do like video games, just for the record.
1: I really don't think that's what he was really saying.
0: Oh, okay. I, I must have misheard him. I must have so misheard him.
1: I, I will give
2: you something to go home and get in trouble for. I it believe does. that nothing ruins relationships like spending quality time together. So there is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. What my else? point for that is when you, dis- when you identify and distinguish only a portion of your time as quality time, by implication, the rest of it is not quality time.
0: That's right. That's you right.
2: know, so you're playing video games is part of the context of marriage.
0: That's right. I'm gonna tell my wife that for 70%, sure.
2: Seventy percent, and she brings her particular seventy percent. You each make some compromise, not sacrifice. That's right. It makes life better.
0: It's it's the, the 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 message that, and it's a good message for higher education. We don't do higher education some of the time. We do higher education all the time. And if we're gonna if we're gonna bring back the, Farzina, I I, I worry that uh, I don't want to close out the episode because I want to be sensitive to your time, but I worry that we haven't in higher ed and I talk about this a lot in the podcast we haven't packaged the importance of higher ed in the right way as the public has and in other others articles news have said higher education's not worth it you could do this and you don't need a degree um, you know higher ed's too expensive it's uh, it's not relevant anymore now if you work inside higher ed you could you could look at that and go but yes, it is still relevant, and yes, there are ways to afford it, and yes, it is still valuable, but we don't do enough packaging of those things externally to fight against that public perception, in my opinion. What are your thoughts on that? This is, a, this is, a, this is not
2: an inappropriate joke, but it's a joke I'll probably regret saying. So the, the joke is that um, engineering students, when they graduate, they say, how do we do this? Science students, when they graduate, they would say, "Why do we do this?" Social science students, when they graduate, they ask, "Would you like fries with this?" Yikes. <laughs> it's real life, and, and I'm not making fun of a field that I've dedicated my life to. But the, that relevance is extremely important. You may have. If you go to India, if you go to Iran, a part of the world that I know, your, your, your Uber driver has a PhD it you know it, it's it's a lot more financially uh beneficial to them to drive uber than to work in an overcrowded underdeveloped field so we read then the, the link between the future earning of a degree cannot be separated from the tuition you pay. you know and then department of education is starting looking at that they're looking at like psychology programs and they're saying you know, if the future earning is $80,000 a year, your degree shouldn't be $120,000. They're right. starting to right. look at that. But it's it's not how much you pay for something, it's what do you get. If right. they sell you a Rolls Royce for $100,000 brand new, you do anything you can to get it. So we got to make sure that the link between the future earnings that the degree provides is not lost with what we spent. So we don't educate folks in and make them really intelligent in areas that they can't make a living off of and then sour them to higher education.
1: Well, I, I can tell you just real quick, uh, a story that, and this is what I relate down to my my, my children is, uh, you know, I really don't care what they do for a living as long as they do it well. Whether they go into the trades, whether like my daughter has two master's degrees. My son's working on an architecture degree. My third child is looking to go into welding. Uh, But the stories I tell them is to at least get your education and they'll be like, well, if I'm going into even a trade, why would I get my education and I use this example real quick. Two of my best friends went into the uh, New York City Police Department. One went straight out of high school, one got his degree from Queens College got a four year degree. Uh, When you went in out of high school at this time in New York City at that point, you couldn't get past the sergeant. Right. And he didn't make sergeant and he ended up retiring with a little bit of a pension. The, the friend of mine who got a degree in accounting, mind you, four years, was able to make it up to captain only because of his degree, and his pension is more than triple. And they, and they re- retired both the same year, and he makes more than triple in his pension because he was able to excel based on the merit, based on his degree. And that serves you well, whether you serve in the public sector or the private sector, uh, whether or not you're pursuing the career and the degree in which you obtained The value of the degree is there, and companies, and especially in the public sector, recognize that.
2: Amazing. You know, i I like to add something to that in in agreement with you. There is a perception now that I don't need a degree. I just need this MicroMasters, you know, these four certificate courses or these stackables. That's all true. They prepare you for the challenges you face in the next few years. Right. They, so you, they give you, in essence, a short-term can of fish that doesn't go sour immediately. But it doesn't prepare you f- for the issue of relevance. The relevance that I mentioned, which is the greatest challenge we face, the kind of learning that we need is learn how to learn. I had no idea what diabetes was. I thought it was you ate too much candy, I don't eat candy. I was diagnosed with type 2. I had two to three months to learn everything I needed to learn to be part of the conversation with the physicians, you know, and, and I know that we, we won't have time, but like that's one of the things I worry about Chat GPT, because every other technology tool we have ever had has supplemented our intelligence, has helped us along, it made us more productive. Chat GPT or AI in general is replacing mediocre t- intelligence with mediocre artificial intelligence. But what we need to be able to, to, to move fast to do. To take what we know to something else, learn fast, be that agile and flexible because life changes and it doesn't ask for your input.
0: Well, Elliot yeah. got all his uh, questions today from ChatGPT. That's why they were all mediocre.
1: I'm actually not even here. This is a robot speaking right now. In a- a- <laughs> <an> AI,
0: <laughs> I-, I-, I do like to make fun of you a little bit, Elliot. But that's the that's that's why we make good it's uh, all right. good it's part career. of the game. Uh, Farzeen, anything else? I'd like to close every episode with the same two questions. Is there anything else that you want to say about Pepperdine University and the Graduate School of Education and Psychology? Anything coming up, programs you're launching, anything that you, you just want the audience to know?
2: Well, I, I am not just the dean of the university. I am also a graduate. If you remember the hair club commercial, you probably giggled. <laughs> um, but one of the things that's really important to us is to be high-tech and to be high touch at the same time, not to sacrifice quality for convenience, Excellent. not to sacrifice your, you know your, um, the not to sacrifice rigor to get bigger numbers, and and that's what has always distinguished us. You know we are a teaching university, we are top fifty in the United States, and if you're top fifty, the US has fifty independent countries under one constitution. So, if you're top 50, you're among one of the best in the world. And we do it by balancing both. And I, and I hope that, and then this is not just a commercial, this is my conviction that a lot of people sacrifice convenience or rigor for convenience. And then they get a degree that, that's not valued, recognized. And, and you ain't gonna go back and get another master's degree to, to fix that or another doctoral degree. So, what we do is high touch, high tech, excellence and convenience, rigor, and quality, and access. So, you know, people
0: shouldn't settle for that. I love that. What do you see for the future of higher education? Your final question. Yeah. So, one of the things that's
2: really growing in the field is partnering with OPMs, outside program managers, where they partner with you, they take your program fully online and you split revenues in some form or shape. And You know, that was a boom industry. Now it's really leveling up. So a lot of people like me, the decisions they're going to face is very similar to onset of software in industry. Do you make your own or do you buy the software? Do you partner with an outside agency to develop your curriculum and take it fully online? Or do you develop that in-house? That's going to be one of the key decisions people have to make And unfortunately, a lot of what I see out there is just mediocre. It's converting what you did in class to online. And that conversion is not one-to-one.
0: That is such a good point. And it doesn't come up that much, but that, that is a, you know, the how you want to get to where you're going to go is a critical question that all of us have to answer in higher ed. Uh, And as you bring on the right partners, make sure that the right partners to help you achieve what you want to achieve because it is very hard sometimes to get out of these relationships that are multi-year. Because if you decide you're going to outsource and then you decide to build it in, and you may not have the opportunity because you end up in a long-term contract. Um, somebody that is uh, g- going to be long-term for me is my friend uh, today, my guest co-host today. He is the one and only Elliot Markowitz, Head of Content and
1: Editor-in-Chief
0: at Fierce Education. Elliot, what do you think of this conversation today?
1: Always a pleasure, very enlightening. Uh, I love the humbleness of, uh, you know, Dr. Majid, and, uh, you know, the strategy behind, you know, how they're embracing the technology, and the changes, and the focus on the student engagement. Really enlightening.
0: Well, I enjoyed it myself, too, and I'm gonna give him the outro that he deserves. Ladies and gentlemen, he's my guest today. He is your guest today. He's Dr. Farzin Majidi. He is the Dean of the Graduate School of Education and Psychology at an incredible university called Pepperdine. Farzine, how'd you enjoy your time on the podcast today?
2: I loved it. Thank you. Thank you for making me comfortable and in ease. And thank you for the great questions. It really made me think about some things that I need to pay more attention to.
0: Uh, Well, I'm sure my questions helped you do that, Elliot, I'm not so sure. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) you've just edupped. Oh, yeah. Attention, higher ed marketing and enrollment management professionals. We are taking the Experience podcast to Insights EDU. Join us at Insights EDU on February 20th to 22nd, 2024 in Phoenix, Arizona. Gain insight into the latest higher education trends and cutting edge marketing strategies that'll take your institution's enrollment to a whole new level. This is your opportunity to connect with higher education leaders and marketing experts from across the country. Comprehensive presentations, engaging panel discussions, and more. Insights EDU will equip you to position your institution for growth. Register now at insightsedu.com and use the code EDUP to save $50 off your registration. Can you afford to miss this conference?
1: I don't think so. Attention.
0: Forbes called commencement the beginning of a new era in higher education a dispensable touchpoint for what's being said in, about, and around higher education now. Don't miss the insights from 125 college and university presidents about what the future of higher education holds. Pick up your copy of Commencement on Amazon today.